totally anecdotal here, but this is something that I truly believe in my bones that smart humans are, they just lean more irrational in financial decision making. So if you're smart enough to understand a mathematically optimal course, you may well try to follow that course and discount the likelihood that you're going to get thrown off track when you're when the emotional experience of the journey, when the chemicals in your brain make it difficult to stay on track. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is episode 130 of APM Success, coming to you live from Mission Control here in Portland, Oregon. Today, I want to talk about financial decision-making in the real world, specifically decision-making that doesn't always make mathematical sense, but that makes your life better and that cuts yourself some slack because here's my thesis for today. Financial pragmatists are happier. If you can think pragmatically about your finances and not just with your calculator, then you're going to have a more enjoyable and less stressful life. Being a financial advisor is endlessly fascinating because I get to see reinforced again and again how deeply irrational humans are. Humans are a source of endless fascination and entertainment. Even very smart humans have the same tendency towards irrationality. And I would actually, in my observation, I would posit that smart humans are especially irrational because they're interested in trying to gather as much information as possible, but they're not necessarily any better than average at synthesizing that information into a decision that's going to make sense for them in their circumstances. Humans are frequently so interested in charting an optimal course that they totally discount the impact of emotions on the journey that they're taking. Totally anecdotal here, but this is something that I truly believe in my bones, that smart humans are, they just lean more irrational in financial decision-making. So if you're smart enough to understand a mathematically optimal course, you may well try to follow that course and discount the likelihood that you're going to get thrown off track when you're, when the emotional experience of the journey, when the chemicals in your brain make it difficult to stay on track. So I know this is a little theoretical. We're going to get really concrete here in a minute. But it's it's very important to use the filter of human behavior, human experience, and human emotion. To use that filter whenever you're evaluating, is something a good idea? Is a big financial decision one that makes sense? How likely, here's the, here's the real question, how likely will I, am I to be able to see something through, to see through a, a certain strategy, to, to get it to completion? given a certain certain set of circumstances, knowing all of my previous emotions around financial decision-making, around the stress and the anxiety, around the excitement and the exuberance, am I going to fall off the horse one way or the other? And here's what I'm talking about. If we take, for example, an athletic anecdote, I'm running a marathon. I have to train for this marathon. And anybody who has done any distance running, and I've done a very, very modest amount, I tried to train for one marathon, (laughs) I got up to 16 miles because I uh, did not select the right training plan. 
or I did not stretch out my training long enough, I found that I had to bail <laughs> after 16 miles of getting up to 16 miles in training. Never made it, made it to the marathon, never even made it to the starting line. So if you're going to run, you have to pick a schedule, a training schedule. And what is the goal? What's the goal of your training schedule? Are you trying to run the fastest marathon that you possibly can in your current human form, optimizing based on your physiology and your athletic history? Or conversely, are you trying to finish the race and have a good time while you run it? Now, if you're an elite athlete, I, I can't presume to tell you the answer to this question because maybe you are an optimizer. And maybe it does make sense for you to try to get to Boston and try to, you know, run the sub three or whatever. For me, <laughs> that, that is not the case. But here's what I can tell you. The path of optimizing your own wellness and your own performance is so intense. It's so all-consuming. There's a reason that Olympic athletes, you know, they have to build a lifestyle. It's not just they work hard in a discrete period of time between, for their training sessions. They build a lifestyle to optimize. And it takes so much emotional, so much emotional and mental energy that it dominates their lives. And it's, as a result, this lifestyle is very, very difficult, very difficult to, you know, to persist in. You're, and, you know, in this example, you're much more likely to get injured because of a psychological breakdown or abandon your training altogether. It's not that you're going to have a marginally less successful race. You won't race at all. That's the danger of pursuing an optimal path. On the other hand, you know, if your training schedule is long and ponderous, but leaves plenty of space for your lack of perfect discipline, your lack of perfect diet, <laughs> for someone like me, if I was trying to run a marathon again, which perhaps one day in the near future, I will. And if it, if it allows you to do those things and still allows you to hit the minimum thresholds to finish the, the race and have a good time, is it possible that that is a better choice? You can see where I'm going here with, with finances. And we're, I'm going to give you one more example before we dive into the money. Personally, again, and you can probably tell this, I, I think that this approach makes a lot of sense. There, there's a, to give another example, there's a book by Tim Ferriss, who I've mentioned in the past on the show, called The 4-Hour Body. Tim Ferriss is, he's a, <laughs> he's a pragmatic optimization machine in all different areas of life. And so The 4-Hour Body, he basically isn't saying, how do I turn your body into that of a Greek god? He's saying, how do I give you some sort of recipe, some sort of plan to get you the most bang for your buck, but still give you a plan that's going to work? And specifically, as it relates to a diet, which is what he is, one of the things he talks about in this book, there's one day of the week carved out to eat literally whatever you want, a whole pizza, a case of beer, a box of donuts, whatever. And then the rest of the time, there's a very, you know, a much more prescribed list of things, but, but it's not super restrictive. And I think Tim Ferriss intuits the, the reality that I'm expressing, which is that the best diet isn't the one with the purest formula. It's the one that you're actually going to stick to. So if somebody, because every time they get to a Saturday, they know that they can eat a large pepperoni pizza and drink a case of beer, <laughs> as much as perhaps that's not a great idea, it will give a human who has emotions and even addictions and propensity toward comfort food in this case, it'll give them a little bit of leeway to be able to, you know, do what they want one day a week. And that can be enough to, to keep them on track the other six days a week. I think this approach is brilliant, and I think it has many financial corollaries. Occasionally, I'll be having a financial conversation with a married couple, for example. One member of the couple wants to carry only $15,000 in cash as an emergency fund, which represents perhaps 
one month of living expenses. And the rationale for this is, oh man, the stock market's going to give me on average eight or 9%. Any money that I have in cash is really just wasted money. It's gathering dust. It's not going to hasten my financial progress. And having a a slim emergency fund is one that is a, a strategy that's going to actually increase my net worth more quickly over time. Now, this is true, mathematically speaking, but in the real world, if you want your spouse to not be stressed and resentful, is that really the decision that makes the most sense? Here's another example. The mathematically optimal course, if we break out our calculator and we're trying to die with the most money, which is essentially the the idea that I'm trying to deconstruct here, is dying with the most money really the goal? Mathematically, you should get the largest mortgage possible on your house with the lowest interest rate and pay it off over the longest amount of time. Assuming that if I get 2.99% on a 30-year fixed mortgage and I can capture on average 7, 8, 9% on the stock market, that I can capture the delta each year between the, that 3% and that 7% and I'm going to be richer for carrying a mortgage for 30 years rather than paying off debt early. Another example, it would require you, the mathematically optimal course would require you to Get precisely the amount of life insurance you need and not ever pay for unnecessary coverage. In the real world, this may or may not make sense, but here's the point. I think you should, my, my, my position is that you ought to build a financial plan, not that rounds to the nearest cent to get you the highest net worth, but the one that is the, gives you the highest likelihood of success, the highest probability that you can stick to the plan when things get difficult. This means being reasonable and knowing yourself and assuming that emotions are going to get in the way because they do because we're human and you need to make allowance for these emotions. So with regards to the mortgage example that I gave, yes, it's true. If you carry low interest debt for a long time, then you can maybe grow a little bit more money in the stock market. But here's what you don't account for, the feeling of paying off your mortgage, of owning your own home. There's a really interesting book Uh, that I will cite in the show notes. It's essentially a series of interviews with financial advisors. And it asks them this question, what do you do with your personal finances? And one of the themes that comes up again and again is that advisors pay off their mortgage. They do it before they have to. And they do it even though they're financial experts. They know that if my mortgage is at three and I can invest at seven, eight, 9%, I'm gonna be richer for investing and slowly paying off the mortgage. But invariably, they pay it off early. It's just this this reflex, this emotional response. And I think that's okay. That's the point is like, embrace that. If you're making enough money and saving enough money, it's fine. And make allowance for that. You know, as it relates to your portfolio, you're going to have a higher expected return, perhaps, if you have, you know, a bigger percentage of emerging markets than, you know, the global cap weight. So, you know, if you if you have an outsized percentage of a very high performing segment of the stock market, the expected return, what we think your portfolio will do over time, it goes up. And what that means is you might <laughs> build more net worth more quickly. But what that also does is that introduces a significant roller coaster experience and it's very difficult to remain invested. You know, it's one thing if you're just getting started and you've got 30, 50, 100 grand invested. When you've got one, two, three million dollars, five, seven, eight million dollars invested. And a bad year in the stock market means you lose millions. You lose literal millions of dollars 
is that plan, the mathematically optimal plan, is that still going to be one that you can stick to? Or are you going to get so freaked out and lose so much sleep that you just lose your nerve and hit the eject button? That would be a failure. And if you have an advisor, that's a failure of your advisors specifically. One final example about how mathematical optimization isn't always the best fit. And in my observation, it is a more reasonable and moderate path, even though it's more costly, is just the path of more real world comfort. And it's still sufficient to get you where you need to go. It has to do with life insurance. So this week, I've had several conversations about life insurance with clients. And there's different strategies about how to layer life insurance policies. You know, if, for example, we have a household where there's one physician earner who's making half a million dollars a year and another spouse who earns considerably less or perhaps is staying at home. In this circumstance, there's a, especially if you have kids, you know, there's a strategy where, say we have a five, three, and a one-year-old. One of the things we do is we want to do is make sure that we get these kids through undergrad and that we've essentially made it so that if the high-earning spouse dies anytime in the next 20 years, we're not going to have to sweat about paying the undergrad tuition bills of these kids if they go to college. So what we might do is have a 20-year term policy so that even the youngest, they're going to be done with undergrad. And then what we'll do is have that 20-year policy roll off. So for example, maybe we're going to do $4 million of 30-year coverage and $2 million of 20-year coverage. So $6 million total, but it's only $6 million for 20 years. And then after 20 years, it goes to 4 million. The purpose of doing this, this is what's called a life insurance ladder, is that it saves you a little bit on premium. Because if we had $6 million of 30 year, maybe that would cost $6,000 a year, depending on medical underwriting and age and all that. If we had six million, if we had 4 million of 30 year and 2 million of 20 year, instead of paying 6,000 per year, maybe we're only going to pay 5,000 per year. Because those 20 year policies are cheaper, but we're trading some protection on the back end. So here's where the math comes in. And here's where the the pragmatic approach comes in. I have yet to run into somebody. You know, if we think about this situation, how many physicians who, you know, in their when they're 50, 51, 52 years old, and they're right about at the point where that 20-year policy is going to roll off. I I have yet to meet the doctor who's like, I feel like um we have more than enough insurance. Even if this doctor over this time has accumulated a couple million dollars in investment assets. And even if they feel like their family has been well provided for and their kids are independent and out of the house, like the marginal cost of carrying that extra thousand dollars into, you know, for the next 10 years, that they would much rather have that 20 year policy be a 30 year policy. They would rather have, instead of the four and two, they'd rather have six for 30. The cost is more. And some of the rationale for having the latter, I mean, it's gone. So it doesn't really even make sense to still have the 6 million for the whole 30, but it just, in the real world, it's people find life insurance like a security blanket. And, and then there's some estate strategies and other things that you can do as you age that, that makes sense as well. So the point is, there's, there's a lot of ways that in this premium payment example, does it make sense to save $1,000 a year to have really finely tuned insurance that is so closely mapped onto my family's needs that whenever my youngest is done with college, it drops off. I mean, yeah, you can save a few dollars doing that, but really, can't we just throw another, you know, (laughs) another couple million for another 10 years and pay a little bit more knowing that you're going to have an ample amount of life insurance? In the real world, I find that people want that 
in my own life, I very much understand that sentiment, the desire to provide for your family above and beyond what they could even possibly need. So give yourself some latitude. <laughs> Get the $6 million for 30 years instead of trying to split with a ladder if you think that's a good fit. So I want to wrap it up here. The right financial decisions are not always intuitive if you're thinking too much with your calculator. And in an increasingly polarized world, the one that we live in, unfortunately, it's the mark of a true adult to hold seeming opposite ideas in tension, to understand nuance, and to allow for something other than broad brushstrokes. So when it comes to math and money, this is absolutely true. And what I would encourage you in is holding in tension this idea of the path of math and the path of your feelings and making more allowance for the emotional experience of your life because it really will affect the amount of joy, contentment, concern, anxiety that you feel along the way and it will be mapped directly onto these financial decisions. So hopefully this is some good food for thought. As always, thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.